Welcome to the Oak Grove Podcast. Amen. So Matthew chapter 2, by God's grace, if we can, if we're able, I'm going to try and cover this entire chapter this morning in our exposition and see what God would speak to us. So if you've got a Bible, I want you to go with me to Matthew chapter 2. We're going to read from verse 1 all the way through to the end of the chapter. Then we're going to discover what God would say to us through these precious Verses. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and the scribes and all the people of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea. For thus it is written by the prophet, but you, Bethlehem in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. When they heard the king, they departed and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. When they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then, being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt and stay there until I bring word to you. For Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry and sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts from two years old and under according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet saying, a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. It's a familiar story, a familiar passage. Many of us have read this or at least heard teachings and sermons and read devotions and books uh, around these events because, of course, these events are uh, every part of a, an annual tradition that we call Christmas. Now, it's not Christmas, of course, it's, it's August, and we get to come to these events and, and revisit them, I trust, in this time without a sense of, without a sense of speculation or any kind of, any kind of overt tradition, but to, to just look at them as objectively as they come to us. 
It's the most familiar story. In fact, let me state it this way. I, I, I do mean to be provocative, though not offensive. That's coming a little later on. I mean to be provocative at this point and say, this is the most familiar story that you've never known. I know you think you know this. I, I thought I knew this. And, and when we come into this story in this text and we begin to see with the eye that's not clouded or shaded with an annual yearly tradition, we get to see this as an objective reality. There will be times as we journey through the book of Matthew, we're only in chapter 2. We have quite a, uh, quite a meander ahead through this wonderful gospel where we will need to forget all that we think we know about some of these oft-repeated stories and see them with new eyes. That's hard to do. But if we don't do that with a story like this this morning, we will continually hear the same thing that we've always heard. And much of what we've always heard is not only just inaccurate, it's entirely unhelpful. We three kings have traveled so far, right? There's no kings. There's not three. The whole story. That's right. I said, I said, time it. I don't know what that was, but I trust we'll just continue. God's word. Much of the, the nursery rhymes, the Christmas carols, as we call them, convey information that's entirely inaccurate. Let's go to this story with fresh eyes. Let me take you there, and if I can, let's commentate these events as they unfold before us. Here's the setting. We've built up the setting over many weeks. Our, our promo video is meant to build it up for you, that there's been 400 years of silence. Nope. I'm just going to keep going, and if it keeps happening, we'll... We'll do something. But we, we know the setting here that Malachi prophesied that suddenly the Lord shall appear, shall come to his temple. The Lord will arrive. Behold, he is coming. Expect, anticipate, be ready for the Lord to suddenly arrive. And then 400 years, four centuries elapsed with not a word from heaven, an utter famine of the word of God. There ought to have been, among the people of Israel, particularly Jerusalem, a building of the anticipation over 400 years. Have you, ever, have you ever spent a long time anticipating something? Have you ever seen an objective, a, a goal, or something that was coming toward you, but you knew it was going to take a long time to arrive? It should be in the normal human experience that through that time of waiting and anticipating, there's a buildup of tension. There's a buildup of expectation. And so, as we studied this over the last two weeks, we looked at the birth, the birth of Jesus Christ, which is no less than the birth of the second person of the Godhead, the triune God. This is the Son of God coming in our world, in our form, in our flesh. God has suddenly arrived. And we flip over to chapter 2 of Matthew, and Matthew now wants us to see the response. 400 years anticipating the arrival of none other than God himself. And here in Matthew chapter 2 is the response, right? The place goes wild. Israel throws off all of their reserve, all of their, of their social forms. They, they go crazy because God has finally arrived. All Israel loses their mind. Jewish people from all over the Roman Empire make haste to return and submit and serve their Messiah. 
people from far and wide throughout the Gentile world because this Jesus is Lord of all nations. They come to bow before him and serve him. In fact, all nature itself is aglow with the glory of the arrival of Jesus. Not so much. All right? If you'd never read Matthew before, if you'd never read any of the gospel stories before, if you were just coming at this as green as can be, that's what you might expect chapter 2 would contain. Stories of the entire nation losing their head. God has finally come. 400 years of anticipating, waiting, desiring, expecting. God, when? Oh, when will you come? God, when will you come? And he came, and there's nothing. There's not a whisper no sense. Not so much. God says, I will come. I will come. And when he came, it was in a form. It was in a place. It was at a time. It was by means that Israel were not ready or expectant for. And during the Second World War, when the nation, the empire of Japan was making its vicious march through all through all Asia and ended up, many of you may already know this, maybe you don't, but they ended up all the way down the bottom of the Pacific bombing major Australian cities with submarines. The speed at which Japan moved through Asia was something to behold, was something staggering. And the American forces had a, had a large a large collection of troops and, and, and naval and, and, and military bases in the Philippines. And Japan arrived, and there in the Philippines at the time was one of the greatest military generals and strategists of all, of all human history. His name was General Douglas MacArthur. Many of you know the name. When the Japanese arrived in the Philippines in about 1942, he barely escaped with his life. He had to get in a rickety old boat and soar through the seas and the oceans, finally land in the most southern island of the Philippines known as Mindanao. I've been there many times and charter a small light aircraft all the way to Australia to try and get out of the clutches of the, the Japanese empire, which were fiercely hunting him down. General Douglas MacArthur did two things. Firstly, he left some of his forces there in the Philippines to help the Philippine people, which were, to be quite honest, not well prepared for the arrival of the Japanese military machine. And the second thing General Douglas MacArthur did as he left the Philippines is he made a promise to the entire nation of the Filipino people, I will be back. I will be back, he said. His family was secreted out of the country, barely escaping with their lives. On October 20, 1944, a few hours after a strong military force had landed in the Philippines, General Douglas MacArthur waded ashore onto the Philippine island of Leyte. You may wonder why you know that name. Our church conducted a missionary trip last year to Leyte. And that day he waded ashore onto that island. He made a nationwide radio broadcast in which he declared, people of the Philippines, I have returned. And in January 1945, the Philippine public were elated to welcome back the American general who would fight and bring about their liberty from the tyranny of the Japanese empire. 
In fact, the Filipinos are so proud of that moment, so thankful for that moment that they've erected a monument right there in the Gulf of Leyte with this large, enormous structure in honor of General Douglas MacArthur of his return and him joining with the Filipino forces to fight back the Japanese occupation. We were able to be there last year. We took a mission trip in June and we made a special, I think it was three hours drive each way, just to kind of stand there at that General Douglas MacArthur Memorial. I will be back. And on the moment he returns, he makes that remark, I have returned. Promise kept. Philippines liberated. In fact, side note to this story, there in the Gulf of Leyte, was the largest ever naval battle fought in the history of warfare itself with the majority of both American and Australian naval forces finally dishing out the crucial blow that would crush the naval forces of the Japanese Empire. I will be back. There's a permanent memorial, as I'd said, right at the spot where MacArthur landed. The Filipinos hail him as hero. His arrival was monumental to their freedom and their independence from the tyranny and occupation of Japan. Now that story, contrast it with, if you will with me this morning, contrast that with what we just read in Matthew chapter 2. God said very clearly through the prophets, I will come. I will come. And, and, and God spelled it out. Where? Bethlehem. Born to a virgin shall bear a son, Isaiah 7. Everything about Jesus' life in these formative early years was spelt out, mapped out in intrinsically close detail of the life of Christ. Where is Israel? What were they expecting? What were they thinking? Now, a few things that we need to clarify in this story. Jesus is less than two years of age at the arrival of the visit of the Magi. But he's not a babe, he's not in a manger, and then not in a stable. That whole Christmas tradition is not just inaccurate, it's entirely unbiblical. In fact, they rented a house, we can tell that, in Bethlehem. They arrived at Bethlehem, we know this from Luke's gospel account, they arrived in Bethlehem because the, the Caesar of the Roman Empire decreed that a census should be, should be taken of, the, uh, of his subjects, and so you had to return to the hometown of your birth lineage, and so Joseph and Mary, being descendants of David, returned to the city of David, Bethlehem. Jesus is born. They figure, well, we're in Bethlehem. Bethlehem's only about five miles from Jerusalem. And in the first few months and years of Jesus' life, there was, there was a sufficient enough reason to be in Jerusalem, to dedicate the child, to, to visit Jerusalem, to conduct ceremonies and sacrifices. They just rented house there and set up shop. Jesus is not a newborn. He's older than 40 days. We, we know that for a, for a fact because... When Mary and Joseph go to the temple to dedicate the child, the offering that they, they, they give, if you want to look this up later on, it'll be Luke chapter 2, 24. The offering that they make to dedicate their firstborn son was, was the offering given to those who were desperately poor. There was a concession in the law that if you couldn't bring a lamb, because a lamb was quite heavy currency in the day of Jesus' birth, you could bring turtle doves or young pigeons. And that's what Mary and Joseph offered in dedicating Jesus. That offering had to be made within or at about the 40-day mark. Now we know 
that the Magi came after the fact, because if the Magi had come before, well, Jesus was the suckling babe in the manger, in Bethlehem's stable, as all the Christmas narratives would have us believe, then they would have been offering the lamb because the Magi brought enough currency to make this couple fairly well off. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, the listing of three types of gifts has led many people to assume there were three magi. There's far more than three. We don't know how many there were, but there was more than three. There are not three gifts. If you've ever heard that, or you've ever said that, or you've ever believed that, or you just sung it in the Christmas carols, there were not three gifts. There were three categories of gifts. There could have been ten that turned up all carrying gold, another ten that turned up all carrying the frankincense, and another ten each carrying myrrh. It could have been 30 of them. But Christian tradition down through the centuries has made this assumption that there's only three and one was just the gold guy and one was the frankincense guy and the other guy had to carry the myrrh. That's not the case at all. There was quite a few of them. There was enough of them that when they turned up in Jerusalem and looked around and said, uh, we're looking for directions. Does anyone know where to find the, the king of the Jews? People flipped out. In fact, the text says, we've already read it, that all Jerusalem was in a stir. So they remained in Bethlehem. They rented a house. The Magi are a cast of wise men specializing in astronomy and astrology and natural science. And they came to Jerusalem. We read this in Matthew chapter 2. They came asking the simple question, where do we find the new king? And it seems like they came with the pretty open expectation that this was something everybody knew. It's, this is how it sounded. This is how it sounded to the Magi. They came in as if they were looking for a locally proud landmark. Where is the king? Where is the Messiah, where is the Lord of Lords? The citizens of Jerusalem had no idea what they were talking about. But word gets to Herod that there has been a king of the Jews born, and he loses his mind. This is Herod the Great. It can be confusing reading your New Testament because you encounter a number of different characters who all call themselves Herod in honor of this Herod, the original Herod, who was the, the one who established the Herodian dynasty. But this Herod is a lunatic. Not just because at the end of chapter 2, we see him committing mass infanticide, murdering a whole slew of babies in the city of Bethlehem, but because this Herod was so crazy, he killed his own mom. He killed almost all of his children. He killed brothers and cousins. In fact, this Herod, just before he was to die, he sent out a decree through all Jerusalem saying every wealthy person, every high caste person, every person of, of high hierarchical status in society should be murdered on the day that I die. That's fairly crazy, right? He said that because in Herod's own words, he believed that on the day that he would die, no one in Jerusalem would weep for him or mourn for his death because he was such, he was such, a, he was such a crazy tyrant that he wanted to kill all the people in Jerusalem that people actually cared about so there would be someone weeping. It's crazy. Herod is a nutcase. In fact, one of, one of the Caesars of Rome, one of the, one of the big dogs, the emperor of the empire itself, once made a comment saying, I'd rather be Herod's pig than his son. If you're one of his pigs, you have a chance of surviving. If you're one of his sons, well, that's another story. 
Herod finds out. The Magi marching to Jerusalem. How many there are, we don't know. There's certainly more than three. We don't know how many there are, but there's a, there's a few of them. And they come because they assume that everybody knows where this new king is born. And they assume the city is in an uproar of jubilation. And they find nothing. It's crickets. So they come to Herod. The conversation as it's relayed in Scripture is a summary. But it might sound something like this. Hey, Herod, haven't you had a son recently? We've seen a star We've read the the ancient documentation. We've come to learn that the new king of the Jews is born. Herod, have you had a child? We've come to celebrate with you. And Herod has no idea. But Herod is freaking out. Herod has gone crazy. And part of the reason why this situation is so bad is Herod is actually an illegitimate king. He's illegitimately occupying Israel's throne. Herod is not even a Jew, not ethically and not religiously. He's an Edomite, an an Idumean. He got this post as the king of the Jews in the times of the Roman occupation of Israel by going to the, the court in Rome and asking them for permission to reign over this outpost of the Roman Empire. And they gave it to him. And now Herod has heard a legitimate king of the Jews is born. A legitimate king of the Jews is born. Herod smells a rat. Messiah is here and Herod's not impressed or excited Jerusalem is troubled. That's what we read in the text, isn't it? Herod was greatly troubled. And then all of Jerusalem was greatly troubled. Because when you have a tyrant of the nature of Herod, and he starts to get frustrated, if you're one of his subjects, you start to get very scared. This could be nothing less than the demolition of the entire city and the death of every citizen thereof. Herod consults his theologians. We read that. He consults his theologians. He gets in the chief priests and the scribes and he says to them, Hey, tell me, where is this king of the Jews meant to be born? Now they know their scripture. They know their Bible. Oh, he should be born in Bethlehem. For as it's written, Bethlehem of Judah. They quote this wonderful Old Testament text. You shall not be least among the other towns and cities. The city of David shall bear the great king of kings. So Herod starts to unfold his diabolical plot he says to the magi he says hey go and find this kid and and worship him and give him the gifts that you've brought but if you could uh, come come back via my way and let me know where he can be found i too would love to go and bow down and worship him the magi don't know any better they assume that Herod is a man of his word, and Herod, in good faith, has made a request. They agree to it. They, they go and find Jesus in a rented house where Mary and Joseph have made their occupation and their, their vocation, and they worship Jesus. The Greek word is proskuneo. It literally means worship. Some commentators, some study Bible notes will try and underplay this phrase. They'll, they'll try and make out that, that what the Magi did was just, just pay homage like you might to a king or a ruler. Just, just kind of bow down and, 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 and give, give some kind of, some kind of majestic, majestic posture of, of adoration. They worshipped. They worshipped the babe, Jesus Christ. They gave their gifts. And we're told in the story, they were warned. Don't go home via Herod Go a different way. And they did. Herod, Herod is so furious. He issues a decree that 
every child in Bethlehem and the surrounding region under the age of two. This is how we get our bracket of the age of Jesus. We know he wasn't two years of age. We know he was at least older than 40 days. He's somewhere at Jesus in this story within that bracket. Herod decrees every child under the age of two should be slaughtered in the hope that this broad brush approach, of course, would also snuff out this true heir to the throne of Israel and thus stabilize the Herodian dynasty. Herod commits infanticide. Now, I don't know how you've often thought about that account in Scripture, but it might be somewhat clarifying to know that in Bethlehem at the time, there probably weren't any more than about 20 children in that age group. We're not, talking, we're not talking Holocaust proportions of infanticide, and I don't say that to make you feel better about it. 20 deaths of children remains 20 deaths of children, and even that fulfilled the prophecy that the daughter of Rachel shall wail and mourn, and she will refuse to be comforted. But of course, the family of Jesus had already been warned into a dream, uh, warned in a dream to flee to Egypt, to flee, and so they do. They spend time in Egypt, maybe approximately a year, maybe less. We know that because we know this Herod, who's known as Herod the Great, died in about 4 BC. We know that Jesus' birth was somewhere approximately 6 BC. And this is to fulfill the prophecy of Hosea 11. Out of Egypt, the Lord says, I called my son. That's the account of Matthew chapter 2. And when we reflect upon this reality... That all of Israel should have been ready, should have been anticipating, should have been expectant, should have had everything ready to go for the arrival of Jehovah in human form, Jesus the Christ. They had no idea. In fact, as it happens, when Joseph and Mary and Jesus flee off into Egypt, and in Egypt at the time there was a large Jewish community that they could kind of fold themselves into and kind of disappear in that, in that social climate. They could just get out of it. The reality is, Jerusalem forgot about all this. They forgot about it all. Herod dies. Jesus will return. We'll find in Matthew chapter 3 how the story continues to unfold. What's the application? Let's ask this question. Firstly, why is Matthew relating under, under the inspiration of the Spirit? Why is he relating these accounts, these stories to us? What's the purpose of this? What can you and I learn from this? Not just to help correct major misconceptions that are passed down from Christmas tradition and Christmas tradition, but in fact, how do, we, how do we have the Spirit of God speak to us through this text and encourage us? I think there's a few important lessons that we can learn, and we'll take a look at these as we close here this morning. The first thing, and perhaps the most significant thing that we should learn and that Israel should have learned through this is God reserves the right to manifest Himself however and whenever He wants. Now that may not seem overly profound initially, but in fact it really is. If we fixate our minds or our expectations on the way you think God is working or the way you think God can or should work, you will often miss what God is really doing. All of us have this perpetual desire within us to, to categorize God and, 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 and encase God in, you know, the famous evangelical phrase, don't put God in a box. This is what Israel had done. You can see this in the story. 
They knew that Messiah would come. They knew that God would incarnate himself. They read the prophecies. They understood. But they had an entirely different idea of how that would play out. And the tragedy is, so many times in our life, we have the way in which we think God's going to come through for us. Or we set the timeline. God, you're going to deliver me from this precarious situation, and you're going to do it by Thursday. Well, God will not be so constrained in our ideas or the ways that we God can act or God can move or God can speak. Doesn't this story teach us so, so clearly that God is going to do his thing and God is going to do his thing his way. And if we get enclosed in our thinking at the way we assume God's going to do something, we will miss the very arrival of God in our life. That's the tragedy of the story. So many times God has come through in our life in ways that we didn't think he will, in a timing that we didn't anticipate, and in a manner that we didn't appreciate. Let's be honest, we are in church. God delivers us from a certain set of circumstances, but he didn't do it the way we thought he would, or in the timing that we thought he would, and we miss what God has done. So here's one application. That God, being the supreme God, God being maximally sovereign, exhaustively sovereign, God reserves the right to manifest himself however and whenever he likes. That's God's prerogative. But Israel had this idea of how Messiah would come. Well, he'll come in a, in a regal military fashion. He'll return in a, in a glorious overthrow of Rome. You remember even Jesus, after he died, buried, rose, ready to ascend, his disciples say, in the book of Acts chapter 1, they say, is it, Jesus, is it now that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Really? Have you been paying any attention at all? So, so there's, this, there's this mindset that we get about how God's going to do, how God's going to act, and when God's going to do an act, that often causes us to miss the very movement of God in our life. The next application, and the one equally important, is this. We need to be people of the book. We need to know the book. Let the Bible speak for itself. Resist. Resist ever importing or imposing into the text of Scripture your view, your opinion, no matter how pious it may seem. This is what Israel had done. Now, now think about this story again. Herod learns from the Magi, probably people from Persia, who study ancient religious texts and study the stars, and they worked it out. Like at this point, none of us should read Matthew 2 and feel like, are we being overly critical? On like are we, are, are we expecting too much from them? And then, and then we stop and think, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. These Persians worked it out. Where was Israel? If they can work it out, where was Israel? And, and, and then secondly, remember in the story, Herod learns that the true king of the Jews, the true Davidic king, Messiah has come, and he consults the chief priests and the scribes, and they say, Herod, you want to be looking in Bethlehem. That's what the scriptures teach. And then we don't read anything about them saying, guys, did you hear? Messiah has come. And he's in Bethlehem. And look at, that, look at that caravan of magi with their camels laden with goods, gold, uh, gold frankincense, and myrrh. Let's follow them. Nope. Zip. 
nothing. None of them really believed that this could be true. None of them really seemed to take seriously what God had spoken over centuries in the Old Testament, prophesying, as I'd said earlier, at intricate detail of how the Messiah was going to come. None were ready. None were anticipating. None believed when it truly happened. Let's be very careful not to impose into the text of Scripture ideas that we, that we bring to the text. The Bible is God's Word, infallible, inerrant, inspired, never, ever, ever to pass away. Even heaven and earth will first pass away before one punctuation mark of this Bible passes away. Let it breathe. Let it speak for itself. One of the major errors of the Jews of Jesus' day was going to their scriptures, which are our Old Testament, and assuming and imposing things in the text. You remember Jesus constantly wrangled with this? When Jesus' public ministry begins and people start to test him and try and debate him and try and engage with him, they would say things like, well, the scripture says... Well, the scripture says, as though they knew understood, they knew and understood this word better than the God who inspired it, who is standing before them in human form, Jesus the Christ. The oft-repeated reply of the Messiah is, it stands written. Debate over. The word is spoken. So here's a good lesson for us. Don't be like these overly pious religious Jewish people that had read their scripture, our Old Testament, and indeed it is our scripture, and had brought ideas and concepts and the way they thought this was all going to play out, and they imposed it into the scripture. And there's a, there's a technical phrase for this. On the one hand, there's what we call exegesis. It's a Greek phrase. I wonder if you've ever heard the phrase exegesis. It means to, it means to draw... Like, like you might draw a, draw a horse out of, out of a stable. Exegesis. The, the verb is exegato in Greek. When we go to the text of Scripture, our obligation, our duty is not to read in things that we want the Bible to say, but to simply draw out what God's Word is in fact saying. The converse, of course, is what's called eisegesis. Eisegesis means not to, not to draw out, but to put in to pack in, to, to bring our ideas, our, our assumptions, our proclivities, our traditions and put them into the Word of God. And when we do that, Jesus says, we make the Word of God null and void. When we elevate our tradition at the same level of the final authority, the very Word of God, we make null and void the Word of God. The second application that we need to learn from the lack of anticipation of what should have been the entire Jewish nation, not just in Israel, but throughout the entire empire, was we, we are prone to do the very same thing. We are prone to not know the book. And when we know the book, when we study the Scripture, we are prone to do our Bible study in a certain way, where we are hearing just as much from the thoughts going on in our head as we're hearing the Word of God. Here's the summary. We'll close with this. In fact, while I'm going to close with this brief summary, would you... Do me the honor of bowing your head and closing your eyes. We're going to close with a word of prayer in just a moment. The summary of Matthew chapter 2 is this. God has come into our world as he has promised. 
he has arrived. The people are not impressed. In fact, the people are not interested. Herod, at the end of chapter 2, Herod the Great is dead. But there will be a son of Herod who will also call himself Herod, who will also be an Idumean, an Edomite, whom Jesus will spar with. In the words of Christ, he will say, go tell that fox that today and tomorrow I perform miracles and on the third day I will be perfected. Nazareth will now be the home of Christ as his family come up out of Egypt and return to the familiar place of Joseph and Mary's upbringing. And according to Luke chapter 2:52, Jesus will grow in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and all the people. Next week, when we turn to Matthew chapter 3, we skip through the entire childhood and even adolescence and early young adulthood of Christ to his public ministry. Let's go to the Lord and pray his blessing upon his word to us today. Father God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you, Lord God, that despite the unbelief of many, despite the preconceptions of many, despite the presuppositions of many, God, you move, you act, you do. You came, you lived, you died, you rose, you ascended. Your promise is your return to take your people to yourself. We thank you, Lord God, for grace. We thank you, Lord God, as we've already prayed here in our worship service today. God, you so love this world that you gave your only begotten Son, that whosoever should believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Father, as John chapter 1 reminds us that to all who did receive him, who believed on his name, to them is given the right to become children of God. We thank you for Jesus. We can see a whole nation of Israel who just couldn't believe. But I pray that spirit-born faith would be in our hearts today. If there are any here today, Lord God, who are yet to receive this free offer of salvation, which you have granted in Christ, May they in this very moment right now believe in Jesus. Receive Christ with a heart of faith. Not be unbelieving still, but to surrender to Christ as Lord, Savior, and King. Bless this word to us, Lord God. May it be not just a blessing to us, but true food, true light, true life. May it govern us. May it lead us. May it encourage us today. May it always exalt Jesus Christ. We ask this. In his all-conquering name, amen.